It's not a coincidence that more people in Colorado voted for marijuana than voted for Barack Obama, right? I think that's very telling, and, it, and those wins could change very quickly. Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast Show. I'm joined today by Rebecca Richmond cohen director, producer, and writer of Code of the West, a lecturer in law at Harvard Law School, and also a Soros Justice Fellow. Rebecca, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So Rebecca, tell me a little bit about Code of the West and its origins. We set out to make an entirely different film than the one we wound up making. Um, We knew that there was a medical marijuana law on the books in Montana. We knew that law was flawed. And we thought we were going to make a verite-styled film where we followed a group of activists and reformers who set out to push out the outliers in the movement and make a sensible law. Um, And that didn't happen for a number of reasons. Now, when you say that Medical marijuana was on your radar. It was something you had thought about. Uh, How is it that it initially uh, came to mind as something you'd want to tackle? Well, it seemed like there were a number of really great films that sort of, you know, were survey films that had interviewed experts um, and things of that nature. But I couldn't think of a marijuana-related film that was verite in nature, that followed a story as it unfolded in real time. Well, surely you recall the verite film, Half-Baked. (laughs) <laughs> kind of classic stoner comedy. No, 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 of course, that's that, that's very silly. Um, now, you, uh, so you wanted to make a verite film, and also you wanted to illustrate the complexities of a policy issue, which is not generally the kind of thing that attracts a, a narrative uh, right, filmmaker. Right, And also, it didn't, I mean, we just didn't end up winding up to make a verite film, in part because the story was so complicated, um, it needed, I think, a heavier hand than verite filmmaking would allow. So we, in fact, shot a number of interviews and wound up incorporating voiceover narration to give the film some shape. Um, because the issues were so complex, and the law and the relationship between state law and federal law were so complex, um, it wound up um, not just in terms of the story we told, but in terms of our stylistic approach being wildly different than the film we envisioned at the get-go. So you are someone who teaches in a law school, and you also have a JD, so this is clearly very important to you, Uh, yet you're a filmmaker, and these are two disciplines that tend not to intersect. Uh, So I wonder a little bit about, you know, the story of that. How do those two things wind up intertwining? Well, lawyers tell stories in lots of ways. They tell stories to juries. They help frame their clients' stories, um, often to the media. Telling stories is a generous way of putting it. (laughs) Right. That's fair sometimes. Um, But um, so it seemed like a useful tool to figure out how to tell those stories also to a broader audience. Um, and it just felt like the way, you know, at least legal academics write about write about issues reaches a fairly small audience, but documentary would be a perfect forum to tell those stories in a way that you could really engage people um, who may not know or care very much about the issues um, and reach a much broader audience. So that's literally what happened. You, so the law came first, and then the desire to uh, engage a wider audience is how documentary film entered the picture? Because that that sounds very neat. um, That's one way of telling the story. I think the more honest way of telling the story, I had worked in film before. It's my favorite way of telling the story. I'd worked in film before. Um, I had worked for Michael Moore um, as an assistant editor, um, an intern on Bowling for Columbine, an assistant editor on Fahrenheit 9-11. And I really, I thought about film school and I thought about law school and they seemed to be the same price tag. Um, But law school seemed like it would um, maybe open 
open more doors. Um, but I did have an idea that it was there was a good chance I wanted to continue making Or it films. opens more lucrative doors. <laughs> I mean, you know, filmmaking right. could open doors right. as or well. Or you but... could take my path and continue to find not lucrative doors. Uh, <laughs> so there's that possibility as well. So you were working as an editor for Michael Moore, and you must have been very young at the time. Assistant editor. An assistant editor, um, but not an editor all the same. Yeah. And, and that, so that's, you know, that's quite an accomplishment. I mean, that's something that... And how did you fall into that line of work? Um, I'd worked for a video advocacy nonprofit called Witness, and I, I met a number of Michael's producers there who took me on board. Um, and it's just an amazing... Assistant editing is a great way to get, I think, into film and video and documentary because you see how films come together at their seams, and you have the opportunity to be mentored by master editors. Um, and so the editors I worked with on that film and others, um, you know, really, really took the time to teach me and train me and help me understand the craft of filmmaking, you know, that by the time I was ready to immerse myself in a different set of issues, that I could come back and have the basic tools, um, at least to start assembling a team who could help me tell those stories. I feel as though editing as a practice isn't very well understood, nor is the centrality of editing very well understood. Uh, Yet, you know, you were quite young when you cottoned to the idea of editing as something that would give you a variety of tools. So what is it that led you to think about editing as 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 a way to build your skills? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It is misunderstood. Um, I feel like for, at least in the the realm of documentary film, there needs to be a better word, right? It's like editor, writer. I mean, all editors, right? In, in fiction film, they just do a very different thing than they do in documentary storytelling. Um, in documentary storytelling, editors are partners in crafting what the story is. Um, and so, I mean, I got into it accidentally. I had wound up um, working for a really wonderful editor, Felipe Lacerda, in Brazil, who cut Central Station and, and co-directed and edited Bus 174. Um, and just the idea that you sat down and that just the instant gratification of putting these two disjointed images together to tell a story and to inspire creativity through these juxtapositions. Seems like um, an enormous responsibility. Totally. Well, just because, you know, you are choosing to go in one direction and not another, you're inevitably losing things that are potentially very compelling or very beautiful. Right, but you're also just seeing relationships between things that you wouldn't have been able to anticipate otherwise. Mm. So the gift of nonlinear editing is to be able to, to experiment and see what works and doesn't and put it together very quickly. And when you work with someone who really is a master editor, to see how intuition plays into that so that it's not so much trial and error as it is when I edit, um, <laughs> but to, you know, to be able to put things together very quickly and in a meaningful way. So you learned at the feet of one of America's great polemical filmmakers, Michael Moore, uh, someone who uh, doesn't pull his punches, someone who has a very uh, clear thesis about the world and the way the world ought to be. Uh, yet, Code of the West, and, and, and you know, uh, perhaps we should share a little bit more information about how the story wound up unfolding. But it didn't strike me as a very polemical film in that way. I certainly think that one gets a sense of who the good guys and the bad guys are, and we'll get to that too. Uh, but but it's it's certainly not polemical in the way a Michael Moore film would be. So so tell me, is that something that's a reflection of your sensibility? Do you feel like it makes it a better teaching tool? 
Um, I don't think it necessarily makes it a better teaching tool, it makes it a different teaching tool. I mean, I think films are often a reflection of the sensibilities and personalities of the people who make them. Um, and so, you know, my partner in this is Francisco Bello, who's the editor I've worked with on all my films, um, and producer and creative partner extraordinaire. And I think even though we both were trained by Michael and his team, um, you know, our approach to storytelling was very different and just informed largely um, by our life experience. And, um, you know, and part of that is, um, you know, is that we've just, the first film we made together, so I had um, worked in law school at the Special Court for Sierra Leone, which is a UN-created war crimes tribunal, um, and I worked on a defense team there. Um, and I came back from that work having a very difficult Good for you, time. by the way, because that's, you know, not, not the obvious choice. Right, but yeah. right. Um, and I came back and people, it was like talking to friends and family, it was people had, were conflating. It was as if defending someone who's accused of heinous crimes is akin to defending or justifying those crimes themselves. And I had a very hard time explaining that. And so I set out to make War Done Done because I thought a film could actually tell a story better than I could about why you can connect and empathize with and want to vigorously defend someone who is accused and most likely guilty of some of the worst crimes imaginable. And so in order, you know, that film, I can't imagine you would have convinced anyone with a polemic approach to why you should defend an accused war criminal. And I think that film set the tone for the other stories we chose to tell after. You said a lot there. Uh, and uh, I, I'm very curious because this is also, you know, this is something that I don't think is very well understood. Uh, just this idea of, you know, why is it good to have an adversarial process? So, for example, when you think about other legal regimes uh, through much of the world, uh, you know, the logic is, you know, the kind of Roman law, you know, uh, approach, the idea that, you know, a crime is a crime against the state. And so we want to have all of the available evidence. We want to know as much as we possibly can in this synoptic kind of way. We don't need an adversarial process. Some would argue that the uh, criminal justice system in the United States has evolved in that direction as prosecutors have grown more attractive. So why do I want an adversarial process? Why do I, why do I need that if you assume that the state is well-intentioned and if you assume that, you know, everyone is doing their best to get all the information uh -huh. uh, that they need? Um, well, I would never assume that the state is well-intentioned. Um, um, necessarily, and when you see how much power is in the hands of prosecutors um, and the kinds of injustice that arise from that disparity of power, I think that's a different argument to make. In the international system, I think it is useful um, not for as many broad reasons as we claim. In the international system, the adversarial process is useful to judge the guilt or innocence of individuals. But because international criminal justice is still so fledgling and so weak, we make a certain number of claims around what it can do to help gain political support for its existence. Um, and so the kinds of claims you hear being made are that you know it's cathartic for witnesses to testify, it helps write accurate uh, historical narratives, um, it can help in the healing process, um, things like this, which are important claims to explore, but I think are largely overstated. Um, and I think I think the adversarial process, international criminal prosecutions, 
are useful as one of many tools in the transitional justice arsenal, but the international community has chosen it of late as one of its favorite tools, I think often at the expense of a more holistic approach um, that would incorporate things like truth and reconciliation commissions um, or more grassroots-oriented activities. Um, and so you see a whole lot of money going to these institutions, often at the expense of other approaches. Interesting. On the premise that this kind of legalistic approach uh, has symbolic significance as opposed to things that are really trust-building and institution-building that kind of manifest. So it's funny that you as a lawyer would think so, and I'm sort of delighted to hear that you are (laughs) open-minded in that way. Now, going from Sierra Leone to Montana isn't necessarily the most obvious kind of choice, Uh, but I wonder if there were certain things that you learned in the course of making the first film that informed uh, this one. I mean, we tried, I I think, you know, I thought the second film might be a lot easier, but it turns out what you learn from a first film is often completely irrelevant to the second. And, you know, I think documentary filmmaking is one of the few businesses in which there's no consistent business model that works film to film or issue to issue. Um, And, you know, I've learned, you know... I I just, um, I mean, I will tell you honestly, there is some regret for me attached to the film Code of the West, that had I known at the start of the process what I knew at the end of the process, I would have made a very different film. And I think we made a number of mistakes along the way, one of which was releasing the film too early. Um, So, you know, for people who aren't familiar with the film and who haven't seen it... um, two things we didn't anticipate in the course of filming. One is that there would be a very powerful movement to repeal Montana's medical marijuana law um, that was driven, I think, largely from understandable um, frustrations with how the law wasn't working well. Um, And number two, that there would be statewide federal raids um, on the growers who we had spent a great deal of time with. And these were not growers who, you know, we met a number of fairly shady people um, in the course of making this film who I thought were probably operating on the margins of state law or just breaking state law. Um, The guys that got raided, a number of them, I mean, these were the people who opened their doors to local law enforcement, to states senators. These were the guys who helped draft the original bill and ran the campaign around it. I mean, these guys seem to be the most upstanding people in the industry. Um, and they were raided by the um, by the DEA and the FBI, and they were facing the prospect of spending the rest of their life in federal prison, regardless of their compliance with state law. And this came as a shock. You hadn't anticipated Huge that this shock. would happen. Huge and it shock. also makes for a very different kind of film. I mean, I guess that kind of creates a certain drama. And, and one would think that that's the kind of thing that you as a filmmaker would be seeking out. But in fact, you were. it sounds that you really wanted to make something that was just a kind of, you know, meditation on kind of the the policy questions. Well, it's a horrible moral hazard when something makes your film more interesting but is like the worst thing that could possibly happen to the people you're filming. Um, No, I think it is, I mean, cinematically, story-wise, I think it's a more interesting film because these events happen. I just think we should have responded differently. I mean, so the film tells these two interwoven stories, one of what's happening in the Montana state legislature and the other about the federal crackdown. And And that first story is the story that you had anticipated telling. Right, right. Um, And, you know, as a filmmaker, you're just beholden to what happens in front of your camera, but there's nothing that says you can't throw away the first six months of filming and just make an entirely different film. And it just seems to be this weird outlier story because most states in this country 
country are moving forward with sensible marijuana reform. Um, Montana's one state that moved really far backwards. And so there's, there is, it is useful to understand the case of Montana for a number of reasons, um, but it made it really hard for us to release the film. Um, it wasn't a story anyone wanted to hear at the time we finished the film. So drug policy reform organizations, while it was sort of useful, right, you know, who were running ballot initiatives in Colorado and Washington and medical initiatives in other states, didn't want to tell the story about how things go haywire when there's not very good regulation in a state, um, and they certainly didn't want to reinforce for voters that the feds could shut this down at any moment without notice. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it was mixed, but there were some drug policy organizations that were um, more supportive of the film, but I, I, it, was, it, was, it was strange messaging. Well, tell us a little bit more about uh, the arc of the film. So you have a few, and I'm curious as to which of the characters who wound up in the film were people you anticipated would-be central characters, and who wasn't? I mean, who kind of wound up becoming more central in light of the events that unfolded right. later on? Um, Tom had been central from the get-go. Um, and I'm I, sorry, just for the audience, for, for I assume that some uh, of our uh, some of the folks watching this will not have seen the film yet. Right. Uh, so you open with a lobbyist, uh-huh. uh, and he is kind of the, the spine of the story, would you say? Right, absolutely, I would say that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a Princeton-educated lobbyist who was hired to run the initial voter initiative in Montana in 2004, and then... And someone who had not worked in this domain before. Correct. uh, Someone who had a long career as a lobbyist working on... Environmental issues, issues, correct. Um, And in 2009, decided to become a partner in a medical marijuana business um, and continued to lobby. um, And then after the federal raids, faced the prospect of spending the rest of his life in prison. Um, And so he drives the story. Um, His other two partners... um, you know, it was impossible to know this at the beginning, but one of his partners, Chris Williams, um, refused to take a plea, unlike Tom Dobear, and was convicted, took his case to um, to trial, where the jury was prohibited from hearing any evidence of his compliance with state law. And he was convicted on charges that carried a mandatory minimum of more than 80 years. Minimum. Mandatory minimum. The judge had no discretion in that sentencing. Um, and um, that would have been the more interesting story, I think, to follow. Um, we had some footage, you know, and we just didn't anticipate. I mean, I didn't think... The more interesting story meaning Chris Williams' story and his uh, his difficulties, his legal difficulties. Correct. Um, and um, Difficulties being an understatement. <laughs> right. And he had, you know, a 16-year-old son, and he was a single father. He was, he was worried his son was going to go into state care. Um, you know, that was a storyline we had filmed some things about um, and wound up being a really wonderful New York Times op-doc opinion piece that we released the day after the 2000s. 2012 election when Colorado and Washington legalized. Um, and then all of a sudden it became very important to tell the story about the conflict between state and federal laws. Um, so, and then the third business partner, which we, who we didn't film at all, Richard Floor, um, uh, was arrested and um, sentenced to five years. He took a plea, a sentence to five years, and he was denied um, hospital care. His family and lawyer petitioned a number of times to have him moved. Um, he was a diabetic, and he'd been um, uh, he'd had a stroke and a number of other complications, and um, wound up dying in transit to a, um, a prison facility that had um, that had medical. And that care, makes so. the and makes the fact that we weren't able to tell his story uh, all the more poignant. 
poignant, I guess, just right. the fact that he's no longer around to tell it himself. Right. Um, so it's an epilogue to the film, but, um, you know, had, had we known that, you know, I think we would have crafted the film differently. Now, you also portray some of the people on the other side of this debate, one of whom, uh, a woman, Sherry Brady, who I found very interesting, partly because it's a very interesting undertaking. Uh, you know, you have something like a community, and it seems that for someone like a Tom Dober, for example, who becomes involved in this issue in the mid-2000s, it becomes part of a community, uh, you know, being uh, uh, an advocate uh, for something that people value very highly, that is kind of very, um, how do you say, culturally resonant for many people. Yet to be on the other side of this debate must be to feel as though you are on the wrong side of history in a bad way. Um, and you know, it was just interesting to me to think about what was motivating her to say, look, we've gone too far. Look, this thing that is being glamorized and popularized is something that, you know, we, even if we fail, you know, we need to do our part. I mean, tell me a little bit about how you found her. So Sherry is fascinating because at least for me, she didn't conform to my expectations of what someone who was pushing a prohibitionist agenda would be saying. Um, so, you know, Sherry's position was that she didn't oppose the initiative in 2004. I, you know, I doubt she voted for it, but she didn't organize a campaign around it in 2004. It wasn't until 2005, 2006, 2007, it wasn't until 2009 or really even 2010 that Sherry started organizing a campaign to repeal the law. And she did it. She says, I mean, she acknowledges that medical marijuana for some people is helpful, for some sick people. Um, and she says, if people use it in their homes out of sight, that's fine. That's not what bothers me. But for Sherry, the problem was the visibility. It was the billboards. It was the dispensaries being, you know, opening up kitty corner from junior high schools that looked as if they were, they were targeting children with their advertisements. So, I mean, I can relate to that. I mean, I can understand why those are really frustrating issues, and I can understand why you wouldn't want that in your community. Now, most Montanans, if you polled most Montanans around the time um, that we were making the film um, and said, would you rather keep the law the way it is, or would you rather repeal it? Most Montanans supported Cherry Brady and would have wanted to repeal the medical marijuana law. Now, if you rephrased the question and you said, would you rather fix the law um, or repeal it? An even larger majority said, I think we can fix it, right? There's now 20 states that have medical marijuana laws on their books um, and have learned a lot from the lessons of the states who haven't done it well. Um, there is a way to put sensible regulations on it. Yeah, this seems like a very interesting conceptual question, also an interesting issue of political strategy as well. If you can divide the opposition by saying that, well, look, you know, we have this third way. Now, the question is, is that third way actually viable? Uh, certainly, you have other jurisdictions with some experience, but it seems that all these jurisdictions are struggling with this question in various ways. There's also just what you, what you say vis-a-vis -vis, um, Sherry, you know, one thing that I find very interesting is this idea that when things are done privately, yet when they're not culturally celebrated or recognized, that's one thing. You know, you see this also with the debate over assisted suicide or euthanasia. This is a practice that had been in place uh, for centuries, was something that was tolerated, uh, yet it was not formally codified. Mm -hmm. uh, and because it wasn't formally codified, it is regulated by certain shared agreements and cultural practices. But as soon as you make it explicit, that's when 
everything goes to hell. Right, right. I think that's absolutely right. So the name of the film is Code of the West, and it comes from this other debate that was happening in the state capitol, um, which we thought resonated exactly with the issues in the marijuana debate, which was about a sort of nostalgia for an imagined past, right? It's not that Sherry and her side claim teen use has, has quadrupled since the law passed, right? And the research just, the federal government's own research just doesn't bear that out, doesn't, um, doesn't show that. And, but it was an idea that when you didn't see it, it wasn't part of the culture in the same way. So it's not that teen use um, has changed a lot. It's actually always been fairly high in Montana. It was just high under prohibition, right? Under, before the medical marijuana law was passed. It's just been high since my parents' generation. Um, and it's been ubiquitous and it's easy to find in high schools. You know, Tom's argument is, you know, the difference between before and after medical marijuana laws is that now people like Lori Burnham can go to a nice dispensary instead of having to go to the high school to buy it. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. So it was really about what I saw from Speaker Mike Milburn and Sherry Brady as wanting to go back to a time that I think never actually existed. So the real difference is just in the visibility of the problem and perhaps from Tom Dober's perspective, better to have the problem acknowledged and visible and better to have people who are not part of these social networks uh, through which they can gain access to yeah. uh, to marijuana have access to I it. think that's largely true. It's not, it's not perfectly true. I mean, I think there are harms that are associated with marijuana use and legalization, but the vast majority of Americans believe that at least for medical, the harms associated with complete prohibition are are far greater than the harms associated for its use. And now 58% of Americans support legalization. So, you know, I mean, it's a, it is a cost-benefit analysis. Um, will teen use stay the same if many more states start legalizing for adult use? Um, I don't know. I think it's a real possibility that use starts increasing. Visibility will increase. I mean, there will be changes. Um, and not all of them will be good. I think the question is just, is that better um, than having 50,000 arrests in New York City a year for marijuana position, possession? Is that better than the 800,000 arrests we have nationally um, for, you know, for marijuana now, what is it about Montana, given that you've seen a movement towards uh, legalization is not, in fact, the right term for it, but uh, a kind of uh, decriminalization or a kind of uh, moves towards regulating in different ways, pursuing different regulatory strategies for uh, the consumption of uh, cannabis and what have you. What is it about Montana specifically that uh, led to this backlash that we perhaps haven't seen with the same intensity in other states that have similarly had medical marijuana on the books for a long uh -huh. time. Um, I think no other state has had a law as flawed as Montana's. Mm. Um, California was a patchwork of regulations because it was um, regulated county to county, but county to county, it's easier to fix than when you have to do a big fix at the state level, which is just a longer, more cumbersome process. So, I mean, I really think Montana had the worst law on the books of any of the medical marijuana states, and I think that was part of it. Um, and I just think it was a state just that— specifically what was it that was so, I mean, was it that it, it wasn't sufficiently, it didn't give enough autonomy to kind of local officials or sort of what was it? So about? that was part of it, right? So Montana has a powerful libertarian ethos. So there were some communities that didn't even have the ability to enact zoning laws if they wanted because they had voted out that ability for themselves. Um, so part of it was just basic zoning stuff. Um, and part of it was, I mean, it was, you know, it was a law that was largely the Wild West. Um, um, I mean, 
there weren't, um, you know, there was no criteria for having a bona fide doctor-patient relationship. So you had this guy, Jason Christ, open up a cannabis caravan, touring the state, signing up close to a thousand people in a day, town by town. Um, a you thousand know. people in a day. Oh, right, in the it's state of Montana. Yeah. Crazy, right? Montana um, has like 800,000 people, something like so that. So he had doctors out of state, um, yeah, under a million people in the yeah. state. Um, so the patient rolls increased from 4,000 to 20,000 in less than a year. He'd have these big these mm. big convention things where you'd go into a booth, you'd meet for two minutes, um, or law enforcement claims 30 seconds, um, with a doctor over Skype, and you'd get your recommendation and you'd go. And it just, you know, it just looked like a joke. Um, you know, and even people on our crew were really divided about it. I mean, one of my crew members feels really powerfully in, in support of tax and regulate legalization for adult use and would have voted to repeal the medical marijuana law because he thought it was such a farce. Um, so when you lose that connection, I mean, those should be two different things. Some vote, some states will support adult use, and that's something they should consider. But when you push medical that far, um, you know, and there's a bunch of 19-year-olds standing in a line, um, you know, smoking joints, it's mm-hmm. like I can understand why voters would be frustrated who didn't vote for that. Tell us a bit more about uh, the process. So you say that you were thrown this curveball in the course of making the film. But when did that happen? So, so tell me a little bit about when you started filming and then when the plot started to unravel and when things started to change. We started shooting in August 2010 and the raids were in March 2011. Um, but things started changing much earlier than that because by... Probably by December, January, it was clear that the repeal movement was picking up a whole lot of steam. Um, and so we knew we had a different story to tell than the one we envisioned at the, at the beginning. There's this overlay in the movie, this thematic overlay that we touched on earlier on, just this idea of talking about different codes, how these different codes clash. And you talk a bit about, uh, you know, Sherry and Speaker Milburn, how they perhaps can be accused of nostalgia uh, in the code that they're seeking to impose. But of course, there's a code on the other side of this debate as well. There's a code that Tom Dobear and Chris Williams uh, live by. And what there, there seemed to be a degree of mutual incomprehension even. There was like, well, how could anyone possibly disagree with this kind of civilized and sensible position that we're taking? So tell me a little bit about uh, you know, the view on the other side, the people who were hoping to fix the medical marijuana law, or maybe the people who said they wanted to fix it just so they could preserve it. I mean, what was the code for them? What did it mean? Right. Um, well, I don't know. Those may be two different questions. So I'll start by by their vision of fixing it. But one was like having some bar to entry. If you're going to be a large-scale caregiver, how do you get into the game? And from local law enforcement's perspective, one of the frustrating things was that a lot of people who'd been working on the black market for years and years um, were all of a sudden coming to do you know state legal above board stuff, um, which in lots of ways is a good thing, right? Like, wouldn't you rather have them operating that way than on the black market? Um, but in other ways, you can imagine how for local law enforcement, that would be very frustrating. How these guys that they were trying to prosecute for years and years, you know, are finally giving them the finger and like opening storefronts. Um, hmm. So I think that was one question. Um, but I think, 
you know, I think a lot of people really were driven by compassion. You know, you spend five minutes in a room with Laurie Burnham, the cancer patient in the film, um, who passed away last winter. And it is, I think, impossible not to be moved by her story. I mean, she's tried, you know, she tried lots of different drugs. She hated morphine. It dulled her senses. She was experiencing overwhelming pain. And marijuana was helpful for her. I mean, you could see the effects of it working. Um, and so I I do think they were driven by a deep sense of compassion to help people like Lori Burnham. At the same time, a lot of people were making a lot of money, and I think that was raising red flags that made a lot of people uncomfortable. That is something that came up again and again just uh, among the opponents, just uh, their anger and frustration at the fact this was a big business, and the implication that many of the people leading the charge on the other side were, in fact, motivated by profit rather than by compassion, as you suggest. Right. I don't know. You know, I, don't, I can't look into someone's eyes and, knows what, mm -hmm. and know what drives them, um, but, you know, I'm sure there were elements of both. And I don't think being driven by profit is a bad thing. I think that's how business works. Um, you know, so I'm sure, but to take the amount of risk that these guys were taking, knowing that the federal government could come in, you know, and send them to prison for the rest of their lives um, was an extraordinary thing. Um, and I think it is unconscionable that the Obama administration would send such strong signals that they were going to lay off state, state legal growers and then come back and do these sorts of raids. And it didn't happen that way in other states, right? In Colorado and Washington, growers um, received um, letters, warning letters from the U.S. attorneys in those states saying you have 45 days to close up shop or we're going to prosecute you. And those those growers closed up shop. Had, had Tom Dobear and Chris Williams gotten those letters, they would not be in business. Did this reflect discretion on the part of federal prosecutors? It happens that the federal prosecutors in Montana decided to be more aggressive and they weren't reined in by their superiors? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know exactly how this is playing out. What what accounts for the dispar disparity state to state? So one of the things you see very clearly is that the states with the loosest regulations um, were the ones that had raids or threatening letters. Um, so at one level, it seems like the federal government is trying to encourage regulation, but they time these raids to correlate exactly with the, um, the debate in the state legislature, which makes it nearly impossible to impose regulations. Um, so that seems, that seems a bit of a strange thing. I, it um, might have also been concerns about the leakiness of certain state markets, right. uh, just the idea of exports. That's a real concern, right? That, so it's called diversion. So the concern is that patients buy more than they use. They sell some of it on the black market. Gro growers um, grow more than they can sell on the storefronts. It gets diverted. I mean, that's a real thing that's happening. I mean, there are real harms associated with, um, you know, with, with, with medical marijuana, with, with marijuana legalization. But if you find the price point at which it makes sense, um, then you can avert some of that. But the truth is, you know, 20 years ago, a lot more of our marijuana was imported from Mexico and those cartels. Um, and now that it's coming from California and Colorado and other states, um, I think... You know, I mean... So you didn't really see any rhyme or reason to the way the federal prosecutors approach this. It does seem as though they were targeting states with weaker regulation, yet it also seems as though they were timing these raids in ways that if that were their goal to nudge the state towards uh, more stringent regulation, they weren't doing it right. Yeah. I mean, it is just hard to know if it's 
individual personality driven if different U.S. attorneys just approached this different ways. Because it seems like, at least particularly in the case of of Chris Williams, um, there wasn't much rhyme or reason. But I would be surprised. So Chris was convicted on charges that carried a mandatory minimum of more than 80 years. Um, And immediately after his conviction, the prosecutor came back and said, hey, if you just waive your right to appeal, we'll drop most of the charges against you. You'll be facing 10 years and a $250,000 fine. And Chris said, no way, Um, which is really rare, right? Prosecutors just to say, just to after a conviction to drop most of the charges in exchange for essentially nothing. Now, did he say no way because he anticipated that the backlash was such that he had some leverage and he could press for more? So it's hard to know. I mean, it's hard to know if, um, right, the fine line between being a deeply principled person and having a murder complex, I think, is like a very fine one. Um, I mean, I think there were, you know, would this have been the best test case to bring up to the Ninth Circuit if you were going to call out some of these legal issues? Yes, because it's so extreme. But did he have a legal leg to stand on? Do I think he had strong claims? No, I think Chris Williams would likely have spent the rest of his life in federal prison had he not taken the deal. And um, the the U.S. attorney came back after Chris negot- after Chris refused the first deal, offered a second deal, and said five years and no fine. And Chris took that. And I, you know, I'm not an unbiased, dispassionate observer. I feel really strongly on this. Chris Williams does not belong in federal prison, and he certainly doesn't belong there for the rest of his life. Um, it seemed like a really important thing um, for him to take that deal, and I'm glad he did. So I wonder. Just to return to this idea of the question of these these different codes, Montana is not a state, perhaps unfairly, but it's not a state that we think of as very diverse, as very culturally diverse, although that's, of course, changing in various ways. Yet what we're dealing with is a kind of normative diversity, a diversity of sensibility, even if people are from the same kind of cultural background. Uh, and this is something that when you look at the idea of the culture war in our politics, it seems that this is a classic case of it. Um, you know, the issues are different from uh, an issue like uh, abortion rights or, um, or the death penalty, but the intensity of feeling on both sides of it, you know, seems quite related. Uh, and I wonder, looking at how this debate unfolded in Montana, does it make you question the governability of a society in which you have such different, uh, such intensely different uh, and intensely held worldviews? Um, you know, I'd never... I'd never thought about it exactly in that way. I mean, I think about it in terms of the changing dynamic of the state of Montana that is, um, I mean, one of the biggest changes to Montanan politics is that, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, is that there were term limits that were imposed. And so before you knew your state rep, your state rep had served for a very long time and your state rep was serving your interest and had a whole lot of experience behind him or her. Um, and as soon as that was abolished, there was a big wave of freshman Tea Party officials who came in um, shouting really loudly, making it really hard to get anything done. And Montana, in some ways, by its very nature, is a very conservative state. It makes it hard. When were term limits imposed? Um, I don't know the exact year, but there was a sea change in the politics in Montana 
um, really right before um, we started filming mm. in 2011. Um, so in Montana, the state legislature meets um, 90 days every two years and then goes home. Mm. Um, and that's, right, they created a citizen legislature um, so that there wasn't a professional grueling class, so that there wasn't a huge division, you know, so that it was your dentist or your teacher or, you know, someone from your community who could go serve in state government. Um, and they also did it, I think, so that you couldn't spend a whole lot of time writing laws. I mean, it is a state that I think it's, you know, it's very ethos as opposed to having a ton of regulation. And so it is hard to make change in that state. Um, and so I think in some ways that tempers sort of these, you know, huge disparate feelings between the, um, the, the, the parts of the state. And it really, I mean, in, in so many ways it feels like two states. It is the mountainous western part of the state that, um, um, has libertarian elements, but is much more progressive. And the eastern part of the state, which is culturally much more akin to North Dakota, um, you know, that's defined by Billings and, and some of the communities um, more similar to, to that, um, that is art, that are arch conservative. Um, what about um, people who arrived in Montana? post-1970, it seems that there are many states, uh, you know, Vermont comes to mind, or also, you know, know, coastal Maine, places where you have, you know, so-called flatlanders who came from uh, big cities, migrants who came and changed the culture in various ways. Is that part of the cultural mix in Montana? And I, I, you know, and and did that play a role also in the, uh, in the political debate? Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. But I do think the idea that even, even longtime Montanans, um, you know, had, still have a power sense of what it means, of what freedom means. And so I think that's why it was such an easy state. I mean, to, to push for the initial ballot initiative. And I think that ultimately worked against it, um, worked against its own interests. Because unlike states like Massachusetts, where you saw in this um, recent ballot initiative to legalize for medical, there was strong and organized opposition. The major papers opposed it. And so advocates who were proponents of the medical marijuana law had to create really strong coalitions um, to get the law passed, to raise awareness about what's going on and get people on their side, and then to think through those regulations. And that never happened in Montana because there was no organized opposition against it, because it was low-hanging fruit. And so you can come in, throw a little bit of money at that campaign, and you get a law on the books, but then there's no money and there's no organization to support that law. And that's why it fell apart in Montana. Is this something that... uh Tom Daubert felt as well, given that he had been involved in that initial campaign? Was this one of his regrets? Yeah, I can't speak to Tom. I mean, I can't speak to exactly what Tom would say about it, but I do think it's much harder. I think Tom would say it is much harder to build those coalitions um, in the face of a law that's already not working. It's easier to start pushing for the regulations earlier when you're still, um, you know, before the dispensaries have proliferated, before so many people have a strong business um, state in it and um, and before there is so much wide dissatisfaction with the law. Tell me a little bit about what you see as your project and how it's been evolving uh, since making Code of the West. So you said earlier on that you have some regret about how you approach the film. Of course, some of these things sound as, as though no one could have anticipated some of these changes. So, I mean, are there... You know, are there some choices you would have made differently just about how you approach the project, even 
not knowing that these things would have kind of uh, you know fallen under radar? Not knowing it would have been hard, but I just would have, I think we rushed to release the film because it felt so timely and important and we wanted the story out there. Um, when well, we... tell me a little bit about the imperatives of filmmaking. You know, for someone who had made a well-regarded film about Sierra Leone and, and issues that you knew about very well, um, you know, what, what are the imperatives there? What are the pressures that you as a young documentary filmmaker face that would make you think, gosh, you know, let's right. uh, strike away the iron is hard. Let's, you know, let's uh, let's finish right. this project quickly. One is credit card debt, which is often a pressing thing for independent documentary filmmakers, is right, you just want to finish your film and sell it. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to anticipate the timeliness of a film. And the truth is, marijuana will be a timely topic for a long time to come. It wasn't that we had a small window to mm-hmm. release the film um, in. And, you know, I had other projects I wanted to move on too. I was teaching. I think there were a lot of things going on. We should have kept filming for another full year. Um, that That's my regret with this film. And the more interesting story is the story that happens in the aftermath of the raids, which at the time felt like, you know, I mean, I guess in the arc of the film, it's sort of the middle section. Um, but I think is really the beginning of a much more interesting story about um, what happens in the face of all this federal uncertainty. Um, how do you how do you run a business with um, without very much guidance from um, lawmakers or from um, government administrators? Um, questions like this, I think, would have been more interesting to explore. Uh, one wonders. Um, if you think about Montana and the fact that you have this relatively weak law, this law that doesn't sound as though it had been terribly well considered, but in the absence of the federal raids, uh, you know, do you think that it, it would be possible to reach some kind of accommodation, uh, you know, internally, uh, given the, the balance of political forces and what have you, uh, or do you think that in the absence of that pressure from the outside, uh, you just would have had this problem that never would have gotten resolved? Um, I mean, the problem still didn't get resolved in Montana. So now I think it's even there's even fewer regulations. It's essentially it really is the Wild West of, of marijuana. And there's even more uncertainty. I mean, I think the way and so right now it looks like the Obama administration is sending clear signals or signals, um, you know, that they will not um, enforce federal law for states that have, you know, rigorous regulations. Um, and, you know, they've they've um, they've sent out lists, you know, that don't you know, where dispensaries don't operate near schools, where there's not a lot of divergence um, to the black market, questions like this. Um, And so by those guidelines, actually, the adult use um, uh, regimes in um, Colorado and Washington look pretty good. But a lot of states' medical laws still, um, I think, don't stand up to that level of regulation. Um, I mean, it just federal prohibition doesn't make sense. I think the end goal from um, a policy perspective has to be to abolish federal marijuana prohibition, not to reschedule, but to abolish, to end to end marijuana prohibition, and to throw it back to the states to figure out what to do for themselves, and to have 50 laboratories with 50 different policies so states can learn from other states. And some states like Washington and Colorado were legalized for adult use. Some states like Utah and the Dakotas will probably never legalize. Some states will have medical regimes. But to try and figure out sensible regulations in the face of so much uncertainty. So for now, it seems like the Obama administration is going to let this go forward. But it's not a 
coincidence that more people in Colorado voted for marijuana than voted for Barack Obama, right? I think that's very telling. And, it, and those wins could change very quickly. They could change with another administration. Um, they could change if there is another backlash and public opinion changes. Although at the moment, it looks like it is, it is it, there's a huge sea change towards the support of adult use. And even though there's a sea change when you think about how U.S. laws interact with international conventions and much else, and, and I think it speaks to uh, a lot of the ways in which uh, you know our system of federalism, uh, and also just administrative procedure and much else. I mean, it's just you know kind of so weirdly chaotic. I mean, this is this is only one of many kind of gray areas in terms of the interaction of federal and state governments. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seems to be you know one that's causing a lot of problems. Right. Um, so I wonder um, about your next project. And having worked on, uh, you know, something that's based in the United States, uh, something that, you know, was a pretty fraught policy issue, uh, and something that you, you kind of feel as though, you know, maybe you rushed into the project a little bit, uh, is the next project something you plan on taking more time with? Is it uh, something that's kind of related to this area? Um, yeah, so I'm working on a number of projects. Um, one that is most important to me, um, so I teach um, a couple of reading groups at Harvard Law School about the convergence of law and film, about the way legal issues are represented in film. Um, and to help aspiring lawyers think through how to strategically incorporate. Do you watch popular films like The Lincoln Lawyer, perhaps? <laughs> um, I tend, I, um, I, I generally uh, show documentaries. In my Got it, class. because you, you would have a far more popular uh -huh. class uh -huh. were you to show Matthew McConaughey, uh, you know, defending people. But it yeah. is true, he has <laughs> his draw. Um, and the idea is to expand that project, to incorporate, to work with the clinics, the law school clinics, so ways that law school students work really as practicing lawyers with supervision. So, for example, we have a death penalty clinic at the law school. Um, now you can submit um, mitigation videos at the sentencing phase in trials. And um, I should note that Code of the West was actually used um, at the sentencing phase of Tom Dobear's. Um, he took a plea, but he had he still had a sentencing in front of a federal judge. And the judge watched Code of the West from start to finish. Um, so it is a moment when you can introduce things that would be you wouldn't be able to introduce as evidence in the trial phase. Um, but to say, don't execute my client, um, here's why his life is really compelling and should be spared. Um, and so lawyers don't need to know how to operate cameras in order to do that. It would that. be weird if you started uh, making films designed to get judges to execute people. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. I want to move right, although that's not out of the question, right? Yeah. That, that, that witness impact statements um, also happened, that prosecutors could use it just for the other, yeah, just yeah. For the other way. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it is a powerful tool and a tool that lawyers should know how to use. Um, um, and it's not that you have to train law school students in film production, but you need to train them in storytelling and strategic messaging, and they need to know how to work with media professionals to tell their stories. So the Human Rights Clinic um, raises awareness or, you know, or, or publicly shames human rights perpetrators or things like this. Um, you know, those are tools that lawyers now need to have in their arsenal. Do you see yourself affiliated with uh, academic institutions for the long haul? Is this something that you always want to be a part of your practice? Um, I hope so. I mean, I love teaching and working with students, so that's wonderful. I also think that um, 
it's just a hard life being an independent filmmaker. And so it is wonderful to have a home and to have a home with a water cooler where you run into other people doing fascinating work and you get to bounce your ideas off them. And I, you know, I couldn't think of a better place to be. And so you've uh, collaborated with uh, the teaching faculty, I assume, in, in other ways as well? Right. Well, I mean, I've always, you know, I was a student at Harvard Law School and to go back as a lecturer is just a wonderful gift because these people, you know, for me are still intellectual giants. And when I have a question and can go back to my crim law professor, um, you know, or, or other faculty and, you know, and, and now work with them as colleagues. It's just, it's, you know, it's a wonderful blessing. Was there anyone who was particularly influential in your intellectual development at the law school? Um, Martha Minow, uh, who is now the dean of the law school, was a professor who had been an extraordinary mentor to me as a law school student. And I came into her office the first year um, when I was a first-year law student, and I said, I don't really know what I'm doing in law school. I kind of want to make films. I used to make films. I think I may just go back into filmmaking. Um, and Dean Minow said to me, that is wonderful. I, if you want to make films, I support that. I, you know, I support you. Um, but do as much law as you can do while you're here. Make sure you do some practice and have a good sense of what the law is. Um, you know, and that changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, that's what got me into criminal defense, and that's what set me out in the world to tell the stories that would be great fodder to make a documentary film. Is there anything, as a teaching tool, I wonder, I mean, is there, is there a particular set of issues that you care about, yet you haven't touched because you find the idea of building a narrative film around them just too challenging, too complex? Um, so one of the projects I'm starting right now um, is a project I'm making with my friend David Feige. I'm producing, he's directing, and it's a film about people on the sex offender registry. Um, and that is gonna be, um, that is gonna be a hard film to make. Um, you know, if you think war criminals and, and you know, people on death row are despised, well, people on the sex offender registry are probably the most despised people imaginable. Um, and so to speak, out and say um, this policy in many instances is unjust and bad policy. And um, counterproductive, some right. argue. And counterproductive, um, you know, is a, you know, I find myself on similar grounds as when I started War Done Done and people said, whoa, by telling this story, you know, what it, it's going to look like you're, you're glorifying a war criminal. Um, and I don't think anyone said that about War Done Done when the, when the film was finished. And I think when we finish this film, um, they won't either. And we'll show lots of different perspectives and it will be nuanced and complex and honest and fair. Um, but it is another dangerous topic. around. One of, one of the complexities uh, with that subject matter is that when I see advocacy on the issue, there is a tendency to focus on the most sympathetic uh, sex offenders, people who wind up on sex offender registries. And usually, you know, you'll hear of someone who engaged in a practice that is considered say, broadly culturally acceptable. For example, uh, you know, someone who, uh, as a young person, uh, had sex with another young person and then kind of winds up on a sex offender registry, right. et cetera. That seems to be the kind of paradigmatic example of the kind of story that's right. deployed. Or public urination yeah. can get you on yeah. the registry for life in some states. One in 135 people in California are on the registry. Um, I mean, so so yes, there are a number of sympathetic cases that we should reconsider. But I, but I wonder if that's there's a danger in that. I wonder if there's a danger in, you know, just kind of focusing on the low-hanging fruit Right. Uh, you know, and, and just kind of focusing on the most sympathetic cases, given that the really intellectually interesting challenge is, you know, people who did commit egregious, grave crimes. It could be that these restrictions on them, you know, some argue that these actually kind of make it more difficult for them to, um, 
you know, kind of uh, basically stop offending and what have you. I mean, that's, you know, kind of seem, that seems like really right. thorny so territory. There are a small number of predatory people who are on the, who are on the registry who, you know, should be in prison because they are a danger to other people. Um, and so I think it is impossible, um, you know, not to make, to, to, to tell this film without, without investigating those hard cases. And you're right, from a policy perspective, for at least some of them, so there's a case in Florida of, um, you know, a, a number of men who live under a bridge um, because a lot of people on the registry are homeless and have a hard time, um, you know, finding places where they're allowed to live. Um, they have ankle bracelets they need to recharge every day or they violate the terms of their parole. Well, they're homeless. Where, where do they charge their ankle bracelets? At the public library. That seems like really bad public policy to me. If you want these people to stay away from children and to not reoffend, um, then to force them into homelessness seems misguided. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's something, I think those those are things to think about too. If you want people not to reoffend, then to prevent them from moving back to their communities, from living with their families, um, I think is just bad public policy. Is there some set of questions that unites the projects that you're looking into now that you're curious about now going forward? Is there you know some common denominator? Um, I mean, they are all films about legal issues and the way the law affects people's lives. Um, and, you know, to date, the films that I've made have followed Word Undone and Code of the West have followed stories as they um, as they unravel in real time, which has required me to either, you know, spend a lot of time in Sierra Leone or Montana or places like that. Um, I think I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm still very committed to telling those kinds of stories, um, but I'm I am more interested at big picture questions than just um, than just the single individual narratives of what's happening in Helena, Montana, or in Freetown, Sierra Leone, um, and now looking more broadly at how these issues play out. In the Is United there a reason States. you'd never make a fiction film? Um, no, I, I absolutely would, and in fact, one of the projects I'm working on is a hybrid documentary. Um, uh, fiction film um, that incorporates lots of reenactments. Um, it's a film, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Janet Malcolm's book, The Journalist and the Murderer. It's the story of the McDonald family murders that has been written by three now three celebrity journalists um, who have told the story three different ways. We don't have access to any of the three journalists, so the idea was that we would tell those perspectives using reenactments, that it would be a Rashomon-like story, the same crime told three different ways from three different perspectives. Um, so, you know, I think we're trying to figure out, is that a documentary? Um, at what point, what's the, how, how much, how many reenactments can you have before a film becomes a fiction film? And I don't know the answer to that. In the 1980s, when Errol Morris's film Thin Blue Line came out, Ever, you know, the Academy Awards said, that's not a documentary because it has reenactments. And now with films like The Imposter and others, we accept a certain level of reenactments as documentary, um, but, but it's not clear how much. So I think we're sorting through those questions and still early in the research phase, but it is a, a fascinating story. With regard to Code of the West, do you feel as though there's a kind of advocacy position uh, that you have, uh, some, something that you'd want viewers to take away from the film? Um, I do. I mean, I know a lot of filmmakers that talk about their work and say, you know, we've put this story out, you decide. Um, it's impossible. I feel that way more about War Done Done, really, than I do about Code of the West. Um, 
I think it is impossible to live through that experience and not think that there was a profound injustice perpetrated in that state. To not be outraged by the fact that Chris Williams um, has now a five-year sentence, um, though it would have been over 80 years, um, and that Richard Floyd died in federal prison. And to not think that um, that would have been um, preventable had, um, you know, had the federal government been clear about its enforcement standards um, and um, had Montana been able to implement sensible regulations. So um, the takeaway is that these laws are vulnerable if they're not well implemented um, and that we need to continue fighting for reform on the federal level. And how can we watch the film? Um, the film is available almost everywhere. It's on Netflix and iTunes and Hulu and Vudu and all those other places. Um, and um, it's also available. We um, we work with activists to host their own screenings and to connect them. We've been partnering um, a lot with organizations like Drug Policy Alliance and Law Enforcement Against Prohibition to make sure there are guest speakers who can talk um, with a level of expertise about what's going on in people's communities and help inform. Um, and so we've been doing um, screenings at college campuses across the country. We partnered with ACLU of Montana to do um, screenings across the state in public libraries and hold discussion forums, and we're, we're working to continue that. Thank you very much for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you.